Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. Today I'm joined by Indy Niyogi. Hi Indy. Hi, how are you today? Good to have you here, excellent. And without further ado, what is going to be the topic of our discussion today? Um, I'd like us to discuss thinking, because we're both interested in thinking, and with a particular angle on the future and how... that interacts with our thinking. Beautiful. So I'll let you decide how to take us on this journey. Um, go in as far back in time as, as you can or want. How, when do these two things intersect for you? Is it that first you were more concerned with thinking or with the future or were the synthesis important to you from the beginning? Um, I think... think uh, that thinking came first in that I was always interested um, in one to use the fancy term in metacognition as I was um, a young student I was learning but I was also interested in okay so I've learned to think in this way but how did I learn to think this way what does it mean and um, how does it work and so that i think was a preoccupation that started first i the future is always with us of course i think for every human being right um but it's only later in my career that i started really uh, thinking seriously and eventually professionally about the future um so just To very quickly sort of explain that um, in university I studied um, aerospace engineering and also film and media studies uh, I ended up doing a lot of sort of computer related stuff after that um, it was in the different jobs that I had in some different countries in IT related things that I got interested in culture and how does this affect our thinking because I was still interested in thinking and obviously uh, when when you are with people who have different backgrounds that are obvious because you came from different places you start to notice the influence of that those backgrounds on our thinking and then <laughs> a little step forward um, I ran into a cultural anthropologist called Grant McCracken because I was interested in cultural stuff and meeting people who are interested in culture. And he was very interested in how um, culture, effectively how culture constrains um, what businesses do in general, but also particularly how it constrains the take up of technology. And that's really where I first started thinking about um, 
the future, if you like, in a more serious way. And eventually I became in some fashion a futurist who worked using analysis of culture to try and predict some distance into the future about events and changes and so forth. Excellent. And I'm interested in the in the thinking part to maybe dive deeper into that. When you say thinking, uh, what do you mean exactly and what kind of um, techniques or modes or however you want to call it, do you refer to when you say you have thought about thinking and adopted uh, certain ways of doing it? Okay, so it's hard, I think, to cast back to how I was, how I was when I was young. Um, I can speak for how I think about it now, and this developed over time. So it's not like, oh yeah, I came to this realization instantly. Um, fundamentally, the interesting thing for me about thinking was how to... Reason, I think, is the word um, under uncertainty. The uh, my original education was, you know, from a sort of scientific background, and that that provides lots of nice tools and thoughts for about how we should be rational. And um, it, these words obviously all have definitions that we can. Um, maybe be careful about, but um, the use of facts and the progress of reasoning with scientific facts is at once, you know, very important, very powerful, but also actually in a lot of ways relatively simple um, because there are processes to determine, um, you know, what the quality of a fact might be. And so you basically um, are working with building blocks which are reasonably solid. But when we get into life, uh, we, we suddenly plunge into a world, um, you know, at whatever age your parents sort of push you out into the world at some level and you suddenly have to engage with the complexity. And we're faced with the fact that we basically have to make decisions or think about um, how to do things or what things mean with not enough information. With, uh, you know, fundamentally, we can't know all of the things that we would like to know in order to say, oh, yeah, this is a good decision. You know, it's like we know about this, we know about that. And so when we combine those two, we get to the right answer. But uh, in life, a lot of times we just are not able to know in detail about X and Y uh, in the time that we have available or, our, or the resources that we have available. Um, you know, a stupid example that's on my mind uh, because uh, my uh, stepdaughter is currently applying to universities is, um, okay, so you're choosing a university. And th there's lots of potentially useful facts floating about. Um, you know, uh, universities have reputations for the quality of their teaching, uh, for the signaling quality, you know, do other people think that it's a good place? So, you know, if it's on your CV. Um, but 
when it comes down to will I prosper in three or four years of time in this place, um, there are so many unknowns um, that we you cannot assess the decisions that we take in a purely sort of um, manner of, uh, you know, is the logic sound? Uh, that, you know, the, the soundness of our logic is important, but we need to recognize, and this is what sort of began to obsess me, is we re need to recognize that there are big gaps in um, our information space. And thus, knowing that, how should that change the way we uh, think about things, but also um, change how we assess the quality of our ability to think about things, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's become a, a recent, almost a buzzword or buzz concept in, in my thinking, and I think on this podcast too. So the unknown, uncertainty, serendipity, things that are connected with um, not really knowing the future. It's almost as if the scientific thinking that you described first, the whole scientific uh, project that we're all involved in as a species, it, it is, it almost feels like something that's done out of time, right? Outside of the realm of time, because it's not about anyone's personal life. Uh, on the contrary, it's about these things that are objective to all of us looking at it from the outside, no matter at what time and in our personal lives it's a lot more about like you say this is this is where it happens right the move between the um, objective to the subjective from the subjective perspective from the first person perspective um, you're simply not going to have the time to even consult the relevant papers that could give you details about how to act in a certain way and I think this relates to, um, and I'm putting it out there so that people can maybe go and listen to relevant episodes that touch on this, but it really touches on morality because it's part of the reason why you can't consult uh, a religious um, leader or a holy book every time for the same reason. Let's say you have some sort of code you have to follow. Well, no matter how how good of an adherent you are to this code, you're going to operate uh, within a time frame that's not um, large enough to allow you to go and consult that thing. Uh, so it could be science, it could be uh, law, it could be religion. Sometimes there's just no time to go and consult these things. And I'm wondering now also if you, do you know, have you played uh, Texas Hold'em? Uh, a few times i'm not very good <laughs> okay so obviously it takes a lot of a lot it takes a lot of uh, a very interesting set of skills uh but mathematics is a, is at the core and maybe even more at the core is exactly this understanding the the reason the game is so um popular i'd say even is because it's a game of uh, imperfect information Right. So for anyone listening, I definitely uh, suggest reading the rules, trying your hand, not not for money or anything, but you could just download uh, a program 
it's so, so interesting exactly for the reason that it's imperfect inf information. So there's the perfect uh, balance between luck and skill because you're working with statistics, obviously, what are the odds that the next card is going to win it for me? Uh, but there's also an, another way to win, which is, well, if I know that you know that I know that, I, you know, I can bluff you, right? Even though I have the, the worst of it. Um, so I'm just putting it as a as a side note there for listeners. Texas Hold'em is a, is a fantastic game to come to terms. I think it's something we have to come to terms with in life because we would like to do the right thing each and every time. And if you play Texas Hold'em, you realize that your um, well-being or your um, contentment from yourself with yourself should come from having made the right decision, not, uh, not causing the correct outcome or the desired outcome. Because that so often just doesn't happen. You know, we, you go all in with 95% of winning well, five times out of a hundred, you're going to lose everything you have. And it's not, it, it's quite a lot actually in life to, to concede that this is going to happen to you in life. Um, yeah. So that's just my side note and kind of bringing in my personal perspective. Uh, I considered playing it professionally, but ultimately didn't because of the um, roller coaster type of lifestyle that it brings with it. Um, Yes, and and I'm also interested from from a personal perspective with you. When did this interest start in you of of thinking about things in this way, um, rather than focusing on not going to to that level of understanding uh, the inherent uncertainty of the future? Um, I mean, if. If we look at my my past, I think there's a watershed moment. It's not like some fantastic, you know, um, parting of the clouds, ray of sunshine of like oh, oh too bad, <laughs> sadly. But but somewhere in the middle of university, um, I I I started thinking a lot about what I was doing. Uh, you know, I had a reasonable talent for some kind of mathematical scientific thinking so i went to university to be an engineer and but i think two things happened one is um at the personal level i i caught uh, an illness uh, they call it mononucleosis and so i was quite uh i think um you know, it lasted a good six months where I was really functionally finding it very difficult just to make a normal life happen. Um, so, you know, that that's classically one of those times when you, you start to look at your life in more detail, I think. Mm. Um, at the same time, I read a book by an economist, um, Amartya Sen, about... Uh, well, there's uh, about a number. Of, it wasn't really a book. It was more of a pamphlet. Um, back in those days, you, you'd come across all sorts of things. But it was about famine and his um, understanding of um, famine as largely not 
if you like, a natural disaster or a technical problem so much as a, a political problem that he, you know, he traced back his the big influence on him um, was uh, the the Bengal famine, uh, which was in in the early nineteen uh, forties, and that also has some personal resonance for him because that's the part of India that my dad is from, and uh, he, he basically propounds this economic analysis, which says that from you know virtually, I, I forget the date, but let's say 1900. He says from 1900 onwards, um, the majority of agriculture in the majority of countries has already reached the point where there is enough food. The question is who owns it and who gets to choose who gets to eat. <laughs> and I think um, this really sort of, um, made me think about the world and say, well, there are two ways perhaps you can imagine, oh, if you were me at that age, there are two ways you can imagine to make the world a better place. You can say, well, m maybe I have these technical skills and I can invent something that like, you know, makes a difference and, and just improves lives. But I, you know, I think um, if I'm candid, you know, there's a realization uh, in in that illness that well you know there's a lot of people here in this university who are inventing things and are maybe actually better at that than i am but maybe my talents are a little more diffuse and more about um connecting different concepts as much as you know sheer technical excellence and and then I was, if you like, haunted by this notion that, well, you know, actually there are a lot of the things that happen to us in this world might actually not be about technical problems or, you know, uh, grow, you know, find a better uh, genetic modification for a plant to make it grow better. It might be that, well, the, the question is, well, how do humans relate to each other and how do they organize themselves? And that's really, you know, if you like, the, that move from objectives or the rise of the subjective in my <laughs> sort of awareness, mm. I think probably starts there. No, that's that's beautiful. And I think that also if we had to connect what you just said succinctly to one concept that comes to my mind is creativity, right? Because you can be doing following some protocol meticulously and that's a high level of execution of something technical and you could inherit that protocol from your uh, master or teacher or anything like that but what you're describing of to think about problems from different ways and connecting uh, seemingly disparate uh, concepts or uh, fields or methods to create something new that's that's a uniquely human thing and that is creativity i think so uh, that's wonderful how did you how did you go about then what did it change for you personally um going going forward after that time 
So the first thing it changed was that um, instead of just studying um, aerospace engineering at university, I uh, added a whole extra challenge um, uh, to study something about um, something connected to the human spirit and the, the thing that came together in terms of the time available, the, the, the course structures and my interests was officially titled Film and Media Studies, um, which fitted because one of my hobbies was photography. Um, but uh, what it actually contained was a lot of um, discussions about culture. And this is the seed of, uh, you know, a big change for me that uh, about how the concepts that we have at hand um, profoundly change um, our perspective or constrain our perspective, that um, all, all the ways that we inherit from all the people around us, obviously, you know, our family, but also our friends and our wider society of defining how things exist, um, you know, really do affect how we think about them. Right. So, yeah, I definitely uh, like to hear some of these, or at least one example, could you kind of put it in more tangible terms of what is such a constraint that maybe let's say take British culture or Western culture something where you are constrained and you're most people you think are not aware that they're constrained <laughs> oh well um so the, I should point out here that uh, when we talk about constraints in this sense mm -hmm. this is not a value judgment so it's right. easy to talk about it and hear it as something of like, oh, this is really good in British culture and other cultures are really bad at this or whatever. But yeah, th granted, that's not the, the, the point here. The point is that um, culture creates particular perspectives and that, you know, being aware of that perspective can really help. So the obvious thing is um, in British culture, if you like, I think I would pinpoint at this time is that um, if we take the grand perspective, so British and Western culture has a certain kind of focus on um, mechanistic and somewhat um, decomposition type thinking. So if you like, the scientific method has become quite embedded in our cultural perspective of looking at things and problems. So um, whereas in some other cultures, you know, classically people talk about China and India, there is a slightly more holistic point of view. And uh, an interesting experiment about this uh, comes from Nisbet, who um, basically asked bunches of students from different places, it's always students. That, that's the unfortunate reality of uh, <laughs> psychological research and yes. something. Um, uh, to, at the simplest level, um, shows you a picture of um, like a cow, a chicken, and some grass. Right? And say, um, 
which of these are related? So typically in Western cultures, people will put the cow and the chicken together because they're both animals and we're classifying them. It's like, this is the animal and this is the vegetable or mm. the plant. Um, typically in um, Eastern cultures, uh, people will say that the cow and the grass go together because the cow eats the grass and they have a relationship in that regard. Um, yeah. So that's that's a really simple example of this contrast between a, a sort of holistic, sort of connected uh, perspective, which seeks to see what is the relationship between things, uh, as opposed to a sort of categorization perspective, which says, okay, how are these things similar? And as I wanted to emphasize before, it's not to say that oh, one of these is good and one of these is bad they both have usefulness in particular situations but being aware that your culture has uh, given you the propensity to look with one perspective sort of automatically you know you what's your gut reaction to being presented with this thing you know this problem is to say okay what are all the things that are similar right yeah that's Versus that's fascinating that's that's fascinating. I've never heard of this um, experiment. So thanks. I wonder what you think about it brings to my mind a shift that we're seeing now with the thing called the great resignation of a lot of people not wishing to really go back to the workforce, mainly young people. And it's been something that I've been thinking about a lot because I see myself as possibly part of this trend. And it seems to me that here is a, a, a kind of example of the same kind that pertains to a, a shift in cultural perspective, but it's along generational lines where people in the past did not expect to see a lot of change in their world. So it was roughly the same world that they were going to die in, that they were born in. And now there's this inherent understanding by young people that change has happened, is happening, and will happen even faster, probably. And there is this hesitancy to subscribe to some sort of life trajectory that uh, looks at the old, the old uh, schema of, you know, finish college by 22, uh, get a promotion by 30, I know, making this up, but uh, going up the ladder or something, retiring at 67, right? Um, and I don't know, would that be a, a fair example of something similar in terms that it's hard for me to communicate sometimes with my dad's generation, you know, let's say 70 year olds, because we see things very, very differently in terms of our culture? Absolutely. That's a fantastic example because it, it gets at the question of assumptions. Somewhere buried deep in maybe your mm. dad and also definitely my dad is the idea that, well, you know, you, you go pick a profession, you work hard and um, you, you will sort of be rewarded with promotions and pay rises as you work hard over time. And that by this act of commitment, it comes a reward. Uh, my perspective, maybe your perspective, is that 
it's a little more complicated, right? Like one of the problems in this world of change is that, well, this ladder that is here right now, maybe I could commit to it, but maybe in 10 years, the ladder will disappear because the um, job has been automated or, you know, um, otherwise removed from our scheme of things. Uh, but there's no... Um, easy way to shift that assumption in my dad because it's his experience and it's buried deep and that's one of the key elements of, of why culture is really interesting for its effects on thinking is because it is buried deep yeah absolutely and i do want to point out that from my perspective it's not just this i think it's it's a it's a it's the first thing that comes to mind is what you said that uh, maybe people like Gen X and and millennials are are afraid, like are operating out of fear that the world they know now is not going to exist. But it's also something different that's on the positive side of understanding finally, like something clicking that we are in a society of abundance and we also don't have to trudge through four decades of you know five four four five decades of hard labor to get to our um you know to to, to enjoy yourselves at, at 67 which who knows if you can you know really take up new hobbies then or have still your physical ability to travel or do the things you love so i think that's the that's the the bright side of this shift is that people recognize that things are getting better or they are pretty good as well right now. Um, yeah, so that's just a, a side note there. That's how shall we go forward about it in terms of connecting to what you were starting to say about thinking forward. For you, it was important to start seeing things in a more holistic way and it's in a, in a in a large part recognizing that a lot is out outside of your control isn't it as well so when would be maybe uh, a decision you made that reflects that because that must look weird to people who are not thinking in this way it must must look a bit strange like there would be a decision that would seem odd in some way. <laughs> um, well, well, it's, what what is odd? Um, unfortunately, um, we come back to perspective, and I'm like, all of my decisions are perfectly natural. Like they all make sense, obviously. Otherwise, <laughs> um, so I think the first thing would be um, in in perhaps a sort of Gen X millennial way. I, I'm Gen X, I think. Um, I should admit, um, is that, so after university, um, I graduate, I have a job for a little while, um, but it's a short-term job in um, color engineering that comes to a natural end because it's a project and the project ends. And then I'm looking for another job. And uh, it, uh, at that moment, um, I don't find one in the USA, so I have to come back to um, the UK because of the visa situation. Uh, so I'm, I'm living with my parents for a little while, looking for what to do next. And 
So I think the big thing that people would find odd is that uh, I do a number of things. That's a long story for another time, perhaps. Um, but I, I then take a job with a small internet hosting company in Amsterdam. And there's a couple of ways to look at that. On the one hand, it's perfectly natural. It's like, okay, I have some skills. They can use these skills. They'll pay me for them. And it's a big adventure, right? Like go to another country, see what happens. Um, but at the same time, I think people have said to me since that this seems like a really brave thing to do. And underneath that word brave is also a little tinge of, well, isn't that a little bit crazy? Like, you know, <laughs> where, where, where is the... Where, where is the plan? How does this turn into a career? What does, and the answer is, well, there was no plan and there's yeah. no, um, no obvious way it, at that moment that I could say, oh, this is the big plan. And so is it, is it brave or audacious? Basically the, the, yeah, the, I mean, the line uh, there is thin. But it speaks to this thing of the, well, okay. Um, maybe I will gain something from experiencing a different place, a different culture, and maybe um, I will discover new things about myself and about the world, and maybe that will be just as valuable as, for example, getting a job at the firm in the next town over and uh, working for five years to carefully get a promotion. <laughs> So reflecting what you were saying earlier about, you know, the positive side of uh, a world of some abundance, but also a world of some uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, that may be a notion that people subconsciously, I'm not sure if it's running through a lot of our heads today, but, you know, all of progress is basically, its foundation lies in the fact that you recognize that you can do something differently rather than follow tradition and value the attempt more than the than the chance that you will fail right and it also has to do with the cultural uh, mindset of how you treat people who have failed because really if, if you lose everything and you really go all in and um it doesn't it doesn't happen for you whatever you were trying to invent uh, is not happening you ran out of budget and you really starve well that's that's really high stakes that's a high stakes game to play right but as a culture we are starting to i think recognize that you know startup founders and entrepreneurs are actually doing all of culture a favor by by going forward and it's more culturally acceptable. And we also see that they don't starve if they don't succeed. So, and the upside is huge, of course. So I don't know, I'm interested. What about that? Do you, do, can you tell a little bit about uh, that kind of mindset and where it is really picked up? We seem to be in it now in the, in the West, in, in the age of, of these companies, but I don't know. I, I guess that's very recent, isn't it? It absolutely is recent, at least in the sense of 
becoming widespread. You know, I think there, there are always have been risk takers, but in our societies, very often those risk takers were a very small set of people. And very often, um, if we're honest, they were people from particular backgrounds who had a little more of a safety net than yes. maybe the rest of, of, of us. Um, so, you know, we could pinpoint perhaps, you know, the rise of, um, it's a cliche, but, you know, you can't get away from it. The rise of Silicon Valley culture is the rise of um, a, a mindset, but also a set of circumstances that allowed people, you know, small groups of people, you know, you can you can pick your classical favorite example. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people will pick you know Apple uh, to start with. You know, some some guys in a garage who heard about some ways of doing things and then figured out um, how to build a computer that could uh, have a graphical display and be affordable for ordinary people and so on and so forth. Uh, but we should recognize, uh, I think, going back to your point about abundance, that part of why they were able to do this was the world had moved to the point where um, you didn't need to be a large company uh, to buy some, you know, uh, electronic components, cutting edge bits and put them together. So we, our world has undergone changes which have made many many different kinds of things more accessible to small groups or individuals whereas before the knowledge was locked inside sort of larger organizations and i think that's a really interesting development um one thing that i don't want to lose but it struck me when you mentioned it is that i had an instinctive I think approach that the quality of the decision has to be the key factor rather than the outcome. But I didn't know, I never really articulated it till much later. Um, someone showed me a, a decision theory textbook where it basically you know, says exactly that, is that the, all you can do in decision theory uh, is judge the quality of the decision-making because the outcomes depend on so many different things. Serendipity, but also, if you like, negative serendipity, good and bad luck, um, unforeseen events. Uh, so it's really important to focus on, is this a good decision at the time? Um, and that, as you very acutely note, also relates to how do we treat failure? And I think at a personal level, this is something I learned the hard way in the sense of not even society's um, attitude to failure, but my own. That like when I tried something and it didn't turn out well, um, in particular, yeah, I, I made various choices about trying different career options. Um, and, you know, it's not, 
But let's be candid. Uh, I think the, the point is that it, how did they fail? They failed in the sense that it didn't become the magnificent dream that I wanted. Um, you know, it's like, I'll go do this and it'll be fantastic and I'll be really successful. And then this and this and this and this. That's how we all start. Right. Uh, but it doesn't always work. And then when it doesn't work, what happens to you personally? What happened to me? I, I, I was like, OK, so was what what does this mean? It's like, am I really stupid? Like, was this, you know, mm. Was this brave? Was this audacious? Or was it, you know, just like, you know, uh, um, rash, <laughs> rash. And also, you know, the product of dreaming, if you like. The, uh, one of the things that's definitely in British culture is um, uh, classically, you know, uh, it's improving with startup culture in general. And I think this is improving around the world, but is a bit of an attitude to people who think they can do something different is well you know are you being realistic oh and yeah. so in my first set of failures i'm i'm feeling all of these things and and looking at myself and saying well you know what am i you know i, I'm, I was i rash was this was this unrealistic was it just me uh wishing and uh, and also with that um, generational culture thing you were saying is that, you know, was I attempting to be more than I deserved? It's a, And that's a really strange sounding statement, but um, this thing of like, you know, well, I, I didn't spend five years uh, working at the bottom level, mm -hmm. and maybe, um, you know, I, I tried to leap and do something that seemed really interesting and possible and and it turned out it didn't work and so it's in that moment of failure um that you you discover how you really feel about it and for me candidly you know there, there was there was you know there was some period of introspection and great self-doubt of like well okay so what is, what am I doing? What have I done? But slowly the instinct, as I say, much of this was not articulated until later, but the instinct came to, to think about, okay, well, if I honestly go back in time and say, knowing what I knew then, would I make a different decision? Not knowing what I know now, but knowing what I knew then. Right. And that was really important for me because I, I, I answered, I think fairly honestly that, well, knowing what I knew then, I would make the same decision because it was a reasonably good decision knowing what I knew then. Right. Well, there's so much to, to touch on just from these. It keeps branching out and I'm not surprised, but I hope I, we won't get, we won't be overwhelmed. Um, yeah, definitely. So I definitely want to, to hear from you what it means and by what tools we can judge our decisions to be good. Because in Texas Hold'em, if you have, um, if you can see the whole cards with a camera, let's say, then the percentages are on there for the viewers to see. They can see if the decision was mathematically correct or not. Um, with even more advanced tools, you can even see how many times uh, 
you know, in percentages, how many of your bluffs work. So it can be also be put into, into this um, mathematical framework and see and decide if a decision was good or not good. Um, but in life, we don't have these mathematical tools and it's not really so much about mathematics. It's about other things. Um, but before we get to that, I just want to quickly mention that I just recently uh, tweeted, I saw a tweet that said by somebody, what is life advice that you wish you didn't follow in your life? And I tweeted anything that ended with that's how things are. And, you know, with the, with the implied um, addendum and that's how they're going to stay. You know, which I think this is such life advice from, I don't mean to play on the boomer meme, but that's <laughs> such boomer advice, right? It's like, that's how things are. You think you can, yeah, you're going to, you know, we've lived our whole life this way and now you think you can do better. What makes you think? It's like my parent, my parents and my grandparents and my grand grandparents all did that. And now you think, and you can come to that. And I definitely see, um, that changing uh yeah but not to get overwhelmed what are some of the things we could use in our lives to judge decisions i think there is definitely more weight today is given to how you feel which used to be i think uh, a non-factor basically it would be something to dismiss basically how you felt about your life choices like where to work or or what to study or stuff like that and i hope that's getting better where we're getting more in touch with our emotions and so that's one thing i can think but what are some parameters that you found that can help us judge a decision if we want to in fact get even better next time so <laughs> I think this is a big topic. Um, <laughs> one place that's on my mind recently is, I think, the idea of risk and how we think about risk. And there's two um, elements to this that I'd highlight, maybe using, um, if you like, Texas Hold'em as, as a, an example. So one part of risk or uncertainty these terms do have academic um, meanings, but I'm just going to use them interchangeably because that's how we use them in language. So risk, uncertainty, it's all right. This big thing of like, we don't know. And, but I'd say inside that there are two parts. If we think about, you know, playing poker, saying, you know, we've got, we've got some cards. So one part is the set of calculations. So I have these cards, how likely is the, this card that I need going to come along? Mm -hmm. Or I could bluff, how likely is it that that person is gonna you know, be fooled by my bluff? Um, but the other part of risk is, well, okay, I have this much money to bet, right? Um, and can, I afford to lose it all or not simply is the basic thing is that one of the ways that we um, need can often improve our decision making is really thinking about well what is at risk here and this is very interesting because 
sometimes it's obvious. It's like, okay, I my friend, he wants to do a, a startup in uh, machine learning. And he's like, well, if you go to the bank and say, mortgage your house, then we'll have the money to do this thing. Um, now that's a risk, I think, to be treated very carefully because, well, you know, I have a family, like we live in this house. If the money goes away and the bank comes along, they want the house. So then what happens? Right. Um, but in a perhaps more positive light, we can say, all right, so um, there's another opportunity. There's a job um, that comes up. It might work, it might not. Right. Like it's a little bit of risk. The, there's no guarantee that in a year's time I will um, have made a lot of money and there's no guarantee even that I will be successful at it. I'm really interested in it, but it might turn out that I did, I'm not assessing my talent for it correctly. Um, and in my parents' generation, that kind of risk would have been rejected. Right because it's like what are you doing like you know um pick a job that will offer you some security right but we're able in our world as it is now partly because of mindset and partly because of circumstance to say well i can give it a try for a year um okay it might eat a bit of my savings if it's not a success but then i, I can just get a different job if it doesn't work out so that's a risk I can afford to take, even though emotionally it might still be quite large. I can, if I think carefully, I can afford this risk. Whereas maybe some other risks involving, you know, the place that we live and my responsibilities to um, my uh, family um, might be a risk that I personally will say, no, this is a risk I don't want to take. And I shouldn't take. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, in, in Texas Hold'em, you can actually make the perfect metaphor because if you sit in a cash game, you're buying with some chips, you can bet uh, these all in and lose and you can buy in with more. But if you play in a tournament and it has no uh, rebuys, then sometimes you would be at a situation where the mathematics dictate that you go all in um, but maybe you're still far away from the bubble, which is the bubble is the term for um, the number of players left, which after uh, that few are left, people start earning money, right? So if you're right on the bubble, it might make mathematical sense to go all in, but then you have that other uh from the other level that you just mentioned of like, but if I do fall right here, I'm just missing the bubble by one spot, right? I'm the last person who doesn't make money today. And this might affect your decision. You want to, to make decisions that don't have uh, catastrophic results, right? In uh, On the horizon. It's very interesting. And another thing that I'm thinking about when we discussed failure and success, that also may be changing because our culture is much more attuned to how good our life is not just in terms of numbers because that's that's the quantitative way of looking at things how much money you make how much uh, uh, security material security you have 
And by the way, it's very easy for me to relate with older generations and see that ex exactly like you say, a lot of the decisions they had to make, a lot of the risks that were um, present were very real of, you know, if you lost, if you, if you messed up this one time, you would find yourself on the street or, or anything like that. So in, in no way am I, um, you know, being, being hard on them or having fun, uh, making fun of them. Um, in our culture, it seems that what we consider success is still quantitative because obviously there's a lot of uh, positive things associated with making it financially, doing a startup or something like that. But the failures we also mentioned, if you don't make it, well, that is a failure on one level of making it financially. But culturally, when as we begin to shift into a society that not only approves of, but admires people who take risks, well, they are a, a success on almost a, a moral level or a, a self-growth perspective. You know, of like we're actually looking up today to people who have dared to take the risk, even if they failed materially, well, they still succeeded than any persons who have stuck to the old, the old paradigm of being uh, basically a laborer or a skilled laborer, but somebody who's doing the same thing for 50 years, basically. So I think there's two interesting parts to this. So one is um, an awareness that, if you like, it's almost a cliche now in, in internet circles to talk this way, but, you know, and th this sense of uh, life as, if not an infinite game, then a long game, right? But... Um, Yes. You know, we we may fail in, in some way, in some moment, but it's not the end of the story. And knowing that that changes your attitude to, you know, that 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 question of success and failure, because it's like, well, um, it didn't work out. Get up and try again. But the other thing is, I think, uh, I don't know how you would describe it but it, it's it's almost a question of values or even moral worth like what are we here for that um it, are, are we not here to learn and improve and to learn there has to be risk and there has to be you know there will sometimes be failure in some different ways that um you know, we, we don't learn only by taking the safe route. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, this brings us right at the core subject of what I'm thinking about and doing, which is what it means to live well and what are the tools that we need to uh, master the use of to get there. And I think that is a, a major shift, which I think is not, realized in real time yet that the shift is happening a lot of people are confused but i think the thing that most 
uh, signifies it is the the meaning crisis, the so-called meaning crisis that people talk about. And I'm trying to reframe the whole thing by saying that the meaning crisis is a crisis, but it's badly framed and the wrong question is dealt with. And that's the reason you have a crisis. Because if the meaning of crisis means the meaning uh, of life, in parentheses, crisis, the crisis is that people sort of understand what life is. Science hasn't got it exactly figured out what, what how to define life exactly, but it's something like information processing within an uh, organism that knows how to uh, re reproduce or replicate, something like that. And that puts us in the same category as bacteria and fungi and trees and animals. And people are not okay with that mentally because they know there is something more in them than just this binary thing of am I alive or not? And that can create a sort of crisis until you realize the question uh, should not be about what the meaning of life is, but what is the meaning of living well? We are creatures capable of reason. I'm saying capable, not all of us develop it, but we are capable. And because we're capable and we have many, many concepts that other organisms don't have to work with, we have the concept of the good. And it's and it's um adverb well right and mm -hmm. this is how we want to qualify our life we don't want to just live uh one of the proofs to that is that perfectly healthy people commit suicide you know so the the suffering that comes about by not realizing or not giving legitimacy to the pursuit of living well instead of the pursuit of just staying alive is that some people uh, choose not to not to engage in life at all uh, right not to partake in life at all um yeah so i'm i'm really this was quite serendipitous that it got me to land on on this spiel of mine uh yeah but i'd like to hear your your thoughts about it and if it's something you recognize in the culture and then maybe we can really get to the to the future part and hear some of your original thoughts on where we're going as well so i think in terms of the future it's really interesting to to just see this thing that we're talking about which is that two things are happening one is that um in our societies you know i'm not saying across the world across the world there are still people struggling for daily survival let's not be um blind to that but in our societies um we have reached a point where more often we are able to satisfy these basic survival needs without um so much effort it doesn't have to occupy our entire day our entire um, life even 
And so then the question starts to come, as you have said, that, you know, what does it mean to live well? So one of the things that's happening is that we, we are more able to ask the question because more of us are um, in that level of abundance that we don't have to struggle continually, you know, again, there is lots of struggle in life. I don't want to minimize that, but there are gaps where suddenly we can ask, well, you know, what, what is the meaning of living well? What is the meaning of what we're doing? Um, and at the same time, people are seizing that and, and thinking about it and saying, okay, then what is it that would bring um, meaning to this existence for me? what should I do? And many different answers are coming. You know, we, we have talked, I think probably because of our own personal experiences, uh, mentioning our fathers and our own choices in life, a lot in the economic sphere. But, um, you know, some people pursue meaning by finding a regular job, much like their parents did, in order to um, satisfy the survival questions. Yes. But then in their spare time, they undertake some other project that brings meaning to their life. And what's changing is more and more people are becoming conscious about the question. And I, I think this is really an interesting development for the, for the species because it's happening at a very important moment as well, because we're also realizing, not fast enough, some might say, uh, about uh, the fact that our survival depends on an awareness of our interdependence with what we might call the planet or nature or you know the ecosystem and the environment um so what i see happening there in a future sense is really more and more people making different choices than they would have if they had been you know the same person 30 years ago and um some of those choices, I think, really disrupt um, the values that we have inherited, you know, particularly around success and failure and about what really um, matters for meaning. Um, and I think that is both really positive, but also can be quite... Um, disorienting that uh, people will make very different choices than they would have in the past but also different people will make very different choices from each other mm. according to what they feel is um important and <laughs> sorry to go really really large but that, that 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 also requires of us to learn i think a certain set of new attitudes and a certain kind of tolerance that we we need to learn not to judge others according to some standards that are living inside of ourselves that the oh that's not a good life or that's a bad decision it's like well maybe but 
maybe according to their sense of meaning, it's really important for them to, you know, to take an example that might uh, uh, come from me. You know, someone might decide that it's really important to go uh, live in the wilderness and start uh, an organic farm. And, and this might be something that I would never do. Mm -hmm. And as part of doing that, there would be um, a lot of uh, manual labor, hard work uh, in the cold and the wet and all of these things, which are frankly um, not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to understand that um, this might have great meaning for them in terms of how they see the future, how they see the future of their own lives, but also of the planet and the species. And... You know, I think we're all slowly having to learn to to think a little more carefully when we look at others and and how they've chosen meaning and understand that part of the meaning crisis, perhaps, is that we can no longer just refer to, you know, some there never was a big book but you know the the big book in the mind which is culture of like oh this is what success is, is and this is what meaning of life is the meaning of life is to have a good job make some good money um you know have a nice family uh, and live in a certain kind of luxury and this is all this was never obviously actually the only way but now we're seeing more and more people find different ways and find meaning in different ways that's that's beautiful i'm so happy you you brought this up you know for me it uh brings up this memory of a personal story i had a friend uh she's still around i'm just not very much in touch with her but i had a friend who uh who was a, a greenpeace activist so she would tell me about all the crazy stuff that she does right like repelling off roofs to uh put up guerrilla signs and um, going on their uh, ship in the Mediterranean and protesting things and so on and so forth. And to me, that's like you say, that's so far away from me. Like I'm not confrontational. I'm all about talking with people and through conversation, maybe making things better. And here's this person who's like this activist who's going to the front and is... Uh, more than willing to get arrested if this is what it takes so that awareness can be raised to the atrocities that happen around the world and so on. So this was hard for me. And it was around a time in my life where I was still thinking in an almost centralized way of thinking. And what do I mean by centralized? In a way of thinking of like, here is how all of us should do things in in the in the in the way that I think we should do things, right? In that sense, it's it's centralized. It's like I want to be a dictator, basically. And I'm telling her all the ways why it's wrong to do all all that stuff, and it creates antagonism, and it's not the way. And it took me a long while to reflect back on it and realize that it's going to take diversity of opinions and diversity of approaches to deal with the problems our world has. And it is about time that we go beyond the level of thinking the same thoughts to 
us having the same principles and wishes. Uh, so I mean by that, that I would still denounce the person who sweeps problems under the rug, let's say, and says there's no problem or is just happy with the problem because, you know, they're very so selfish that they don't, they don't care for um, other people and so on. But with her, I definitely recognize that on some level, um, some our vibe, let's say, was definitely uh, good going between us. And I realized that even though she does things very differently from me, she's my ally. And also, as I, as I grow up, I can see what you're talking about, how there's not a right move, but there's a range of right moves. And I have to accept that Again, this goes back to decisions. Now I don't look at past decisions and saying and telling myself, was this the right decision or the best decision? I just look, well, was it within a range that makes sense, that is reasonable? And if it's in within that range, um, that's good enough. And I'm, and I'm happy about it because it's just, it makes no sense to aim for the right decision. Um, and I definitely think this is something I hope we're being so optimistic. Are we right about, about being so optimistic? Obviously, we just came from a time where, you know, divisiveness in some countries has reached an all-time high of divisiveness. And it's it's very interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering now, are, are there two forces here at the, at the same time kind of clashing or do you recognize a trend that's definitely going to um or definitely going to that's a funny thing to say <laughs> in an episode about the unknown future um <laughs> but is it uh markedly the case that the trend is towards uh tolerance and diversity of thoughts oh so such an interesting and difficult one there um Yes, we must recognize, you know, certainly in, in my country here in Britain um, and elsewhere that um, there is a lot of divisiveness and there is a lot of, um, you know, a lot of ways we could look at this and say, well, one way that people can react to these changes is to, to, to want to stop them and to, to feel threatened by them. Um, you know, and that is happening. There are people who feel threatened by the changes and, you know, in the politics, it's coming out as uh, a lot of um, anger and inside that anger, very often you can see a desire to uh, stop the change that oh, we liked it how it was or uh, very often not even we liked how it is now, but we liked how it was 20 years ago and we wish we could go back there. Um, so, yes. But I am optimistic, and some of that I will candidly admit is that um, that is a choice, not an analytical statement. That I I think that the not the way, but it's it's very helpful if you want to make a better world. If you have some optimism to go along, <laughs> that's with true, and. Uh, that we can
can make a better world. And that, that I would say is in part a belief, not an analytical statement again. I believe that we can make a better world. At the same time, I think if we look at our societies across our lifetimes, across the lifetime of the people we know, say our parents, our grandparents, many things have changed and many of them have been for the better, particularly in the realm of tolerance. Um, if we It's easy to, to, to deny this by taking specifics and say, well, five years ago, um, um, things were good. And since then, they've gotten worse because things have gotten more divisive and less tolerant. But if, if we accept that life is not a smooth path, but it, it, it can be uh, a journey of steps forward and steps back, then I think we can see that, you know, for example, across my lifetime, the... Um, attitudes to uh, people of, you know, different, what they call race and skin color, you know, um, have definitely improved. And that's not to say that we're there and it's, it's all beautiful. But um, when I think back to some of the things that happened to my dad who came from India to live in Britain, and then I compare it to my own life, it's like, yeah, you can see some improvements in general attitudes and how things go. And we need to not lose that awareness. And I think that's an interesting thing to loop back to when you talked about decisions and how can we assess whether were decisions good or bad. Um, I think time scale is a really important thing to keep in mind about analysis. Um, if, if you look in too short a scale, then it's very easy to lose sight of a bigger picture. And so, um, you know, I think in the short term, you know, there is a counter reaction that, that all of this change happening has created a lot of worry and anger and distress and fear. And we see that coming out in, in our politics and so forth. But if we look on a slightly longer time scale, we say, well, yeah, um, inside that, yes, there have been re reactions, but a lot of progress has slowly happened. So I have a, an optimism, which is part belief and part analysis that says, yes, um, things have improved and they can improve some more. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in, in going back to one of the original problems that got you to think about it. it's a world hunger. Um, obviously, this has uh, occupied your mind and it's probably something that that keeps occupying your mind. And what are some of the lessons you took there when you learned more about polit uh, politics and attitudes and how these things can be moved around more efficiently, right? Because as I like saying, there's not a shortage of, of food produced, there's only a shortage of, of free will, uh, uh, not free will, but goodwill, and possibly some knowledge about logistics, how to, to get things. 
so right now, as we speak, there's a huge drought in Madagascar, mm. right? Um, and these are exactly the scenes where today it's almost inexcusable that we still see these things, right? So on that specific problem, have you reached some sort of uh, conclusions on? Well, I, I would not claim to to be able to solve world hunger, but I, I think my conclusion is is very much as you say, you know, the question of goodwill and the question of will. And the way I frame it is to say that the progress that we have made, but still need to make more, is the value that we attach to human life and a meaningful life that um don't we all deserve a meaningful life and don't we all deserve a life without hunger um i think actually the optimist in me says that most people would answer yes to those questions but of course um we are easily diverted by um, people throwing up objections and fears that, well, okay, if we if we if we go uh, if we go help the Madagascar people, then aren't some of our people going to suffer? You know, mm -hmm. that's one of the ways we get deflected. Mm -hmm. and so I I very much think we're not there, but I think the the work to be done. Uh, and is to really, I mean, it sounds so um, idealistic and I, I don't usually run straight to idealism, but, but really um, to show each other that we value each other and through that um, slowly we can improve the way we all value each other. And then some of these questions become easier to resolve because if we truly um, value human life, not just our own life, but all human life and truly believe that we all deserve um, the share of the abundance that we already have, then we can solve many of these problems. Um, and yeah, that's that's really idealistic. And I, I don't suggest that we're there and I don't suggest that we'll get there quickly, but I believe that we can get there. Yeah, well, that's that's the meaning of, of being a visionary is, is not talking about the here and now exactly. Um, yeah, I love it. And to me, it ties back to, you know, making the shift between the question about the, the meaning of, of life and to shift it into the meaning of the good life I think that I will be able to judge if I see a little bit of change in the in the world. Okay, so what I mean is that I think you're correct in saying that a lot of people are starting to uh, to make the switch, but it's not an explicit switch from what is the meaning of life to what what does it mean to live well. What happens is that people are disillusioned with just living to live right they realize uh, subconsciously that there is more to life than living as i like saying but it takes um 
disciplined thinking, or if not disciplined, then structured thinking, uh, rational thinking, to actually arrive at an explicit question. And it's not to say that all of us have to have this as an explicit question, but it really helps. If you think about things explicitly using dialectic or some other rational uh, or just rational thinking, let's say, it does help when you reach this explicit new insight and then it really can um, be made part of your uh, foundation or part of your principles that inform your actions in this life and i think people are disillusioned with the meaning of life question but they've not really gotten to the point where they realize they're asking about what it means to live well so i still see some remnants of the old ways for example looking at startups and still being enamored with the great financial benefit so how could it look even better is if we really hold in high esteem the people who can give us the new logistics to vastly improve the world hunger problem or the environmental problem right and and i don't mean financially they can have financial um success but of course people are still very much into the whole thing of being very financially successful or rich which is kind of a remnant from from the old the old school way of looking at things as um the good life is a quantifiable thing which i really don't agree with so if if one thing that i'd like to um echo and make reverberate in the world in the upcoming i don't know months years to come is really to make explicit the fact that we're looking at the meaning of of living well i think a lot of people are still trying their hardest to find a, a a good answer to the meaning of life even though like i said i think we already have it so you have scholars like jordan peterson who talk a lot about the, the meaning crisis but never quite making the switch into the meaning of living of living well crisis which is uh really what that is um yeah so some scatterbrain thoughts here but i hope it contributed in some way um I love this discussion. I think we've gone over an hour easily. Um, and yeah, I just want to give you another chance if, if any thoughts uh, crop up right now or some things you think we haven't attended to in terms of um, aspects of thinking about the future. Um, <laughs> I think just to wrap it up, I think these things are connected uh, throughout our conversation, but... Um, if we acknowledge uncertainty, then we have to acknowledge that good decisions cannot be assessed by the outcomes. And in particular, by the personal financial outcomes. That some people, some some two people who basically make the same decision, but happen to be in different places. You know, one in New York and one um, in uh, Berlin. Say, um, they can make the same decision, but it can have different outcomes. And I think underlying that comes a certain kind of humility. 
And if we're lucky, we can develop this humility into a respect for each other. And that, for me, is, I think, the seed of optimism. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I completely agree. I think that this can move us in the direction of not being so concerned with our people like-minded and more opening up, more opening us to the possibility of looking for like-hearted people, which is really at the foundation, I think, we all are. So our cultures can be very different. We can have very different explicit thoughts and thinking about how to do things. But if we're looking for like-hearted people, we can begin to see that even people who operate very differently from us are still our allies, still care about the same problems. And again, with this uh, armed with this humility, so-called, um, or having the humility in us and the kindness we can discuss things with them and be much better at solving our problems uh which like i said are shared and yeah i'm i'm with you i'm with you and you've definitely um <laughs> infected me with optimism so uh that's really good and and that's a lot of fun um thanks so much for this indy this has been great i'd like you to um share with us any details you want about what you're working on or where to uh, follow you or hear more from you okay so the easiest uh, place to find me is probably on twitter uh, my handle is at indie underscore neogi and i write a newsletter called mind atelier about thinking thinking about thinking and um you can find out about my life uh, on as an ex-futurist and currently as a coach through uh, finding me on Twitter. So I think that's the easiest way. Awesome. That's great. And if anybody wants to comment on your newsletter, then they've been thinking about thinking about thinking, which is nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Indy. And I hope this won't be the last. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful.